When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should watch today's show. Coinbase's third quarter earnings missed the mark. Goldman Sachs launches a new crypto tool and the Gala Games Hack. We'll cover all these stories and why they matter. Plus, Christine Kim, research associate at Galaxy Digital, joins us to talk about ETH yield in a post-merge world. Stay tuned for that. I'm Ash Bennington. With me today, we have Moritz Siebert. Moritz, welcome back. Well, Ash, you're my favorite Real Vision host. You know that. It's always great to be back with you. How are you? It's always a pleasure to be here with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Such an interesting uh, framework to talk about. By the way, don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe and hit the notification bell so you don't ever miss when we go live. All right, with that said, let's jump right into today's price action. We're seeing some positive price action this morning. Bitcoin is up roughly 4% in the last 24 hours, breaking above $21,000, which is the highest it's been since it declined in mid-September. We're seeing similar but more pronounced movements from Ethereum. ETH is up about 6.5% over the last 24 hours, also reaching its highest level since the token's post-merge fall in mid-September. One token we're looking at that is down down, however, is Gala, the native token of Gala Games. It fell roughly 20% after speculation that it was hacked. It's recovered some of those losses, now down only about 8% in the last 24 hours, but obviously a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty there. Anything catch your attention, Moritz? Uh, what do you make from these moves in Ethereum and Bitcoin? It's higher, Ash. I'm really excited about that. You know, just 48 hours ago, I was on the daily briefing with Marco and we were saying, boy, is this boring. Like, you know, it's again range bound and nothing's moving. It's like watching paint dry and the realized volatility of Bitcoin is less than the realized vol of the S&P 500. And it's just we fail to really like break through to the top side. And boom, here we go. We're north of 1600 in Ethereum. I'm really happy to see this. And I hope that there's going to be some follow through. Um, you know, we're dealing in probabilities and never uncertainties, maybe before the holidays, maybe before Thanksgiving, we'll see Bitcoin at 25,000 and Ethereum at uh, 2000. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm, I'm cheering for that. So let's see if that happens. Norris, I love the holiday cheer and optimism. Uh, but getting into our first story, obviously, this one is about the crypto industry still facing headwinds. Earnings and revenue at Coinbase's, uh, Coinbase's global third quarter missed on Thursday, causing shares to fall around 8% in Thursday trading before recovering about 4.5% yesterday uh, on an after-hours trading rally. Conversely, the company was able to retain users and lower expenses more effectively than analysts had expected. In its shareholder newsletter, Coinbase reported the transaction revenue declined $366 million, uh, down 44% from Q2, driven by lower trading volumes. One of the factors Coinbase attributes to the decline is the trading volume shift away from the United States, which may 
may be due to the perception of uncertainty surrounding the U.S. regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies. On a somewhat brighter note, as a result of rising interest rates, interest income has become a buffer for the company during this bear market. Uh, this income has more than tripled from $32.5 million to $101.8 million, this according to analysis from Coindesk. Still, according to Alicia Haas, Coinbase's chief financial officer, the company is, quote, preparing for 2023 with a more conservative bias, close quote, adding that Coinbase is developing plans that will be more conservative next year as these headwinds could persist or possibly intensify this, according to Haas. Moritz, what do you think? More crypto headwinds in 2023? What's your view? I know you're an optimist in price action, uh, but what's your take on the broader space for 2023? Yeah. I like to be the optimist. I mean, 2023 is still, you know, uh, way out. <laughs> it's like an eternity in crypto space. Um, look, the headwinds are there and and we are in a bear market still. So, you know, I'm not surprised to see that, uh, you know, you have a drop in earnings at, at Coinbase. Um, earlier this week, we've heard about layoffs at a you know, couple of crypto firms. Yeah. It's a tough business. You know, when I speak to friends of mine or all sorts of people, like nobody's really trading, you know, that's the thing. Like, you know, there's no real reason for people to get back into crypto now, it seems. Like, you know, their portfolios are on fire. People are suffering. Equities are down. The dollar is up. Inflation's higher. Yields are higher. It's difficult to get people into the space. So I think that is kind of like the natural byproduct is that you see a drop in earnings uh, on exchanges um, in crypto, in, in the crypto space in general. Um, yeah. So I'm not surprised to that. I hope that is going to change in 2023, being the optimist here. Yeah, and to your broader point, also, this is something that we're seeing in tech more generally. Obviously, uh, we were talking about this yesterday on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Amazon expanding its hiring pause, Lyft announcing a 13% uh, layoff in workforce, Stripe, the, the online payments giant, reducing a uh, workforce by 14%. It's just an ugly time in the valley more generally. Yeah. It is. It is. It absolutely is. And look, I mean, as I said, I, I hope it's going to turn around, hopefully doing a U-turn and a 180 in, in, in 2023, but um, the headwinds are there. I mean, let's just be realistic about that. Yeah, there's that optimism. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, next story here. This is a really interesting one. We were talking about this one off camera. In a press release issued on Thursday, investment bank Goldman Sachs announced that it's partnered with financial services firm MSCI and crypto intelligence company CoinMetrics to launch a new digital asset classification system called Datonomy. Datanomy? I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's D-A-T-A-N-O-M-Y. Uh, and it's a new tool that classifies coins and tokens based on their functionality and use cases. It's designed to provide clients a standardized way to analyze the broader crypto markets, including DeFi and smart contracts platforms. Moritz, this is just a fascinating story. This functionality has been a long time coming, a long time discussed. Uh, it's been a challenge in the space to basically talk about crypto without these classifications in place. We were talking about this gap uh, back at Coindesk way back in 2017. I remember uh, we were working on some ideas uh, then to try and frame this out. You know, if you want wider adoption of crypto and blockchain, you need a framework to talk about it. You know, I actually showed the GIC sector map. That's the global industry classification standard uh, for the S&P 500 last night on Real Vision Daily Briefing, because it's so important when you're trying to get a sense of what's happening in a market to have these sort of broad functional buckets for understanding what's happening. Tell me more. What's your take on all this? To me, Ash, this is the biggest story. I yeah. really think that the investment banks, it's not just Goldman. You know, Goldman is already in the space. Uh, they did a, I think, derivatives transaction linked to Bitcoin a couple of months ago. 
they're all coming. You know, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, you name them. They will all come because crypto or digital assets as an asset class, it is just too big to ignore and it's here to stay. I think they're waiting for the regulatory framework to consistently come into place. Hopefully that will happen. That will be the tailwind. And then that opens the doors. So I'm really, I'm really excited to see this. Like, you know, these are like, they're stepping towards that goal. Yeah. And they're like, you know, preparing essentially the fields, the playgrounds, like, look, I mean, those are this is the classification, those are the different tokens. We're educating people, we're educating our clients. All of that I think is super positive. So I, I really like to see that. Words. I think that's so well said, spot on, I think, in everything you just said there. And I think they just can't afford not to be. This is too much of a risk uh, that we look at this space and people who are passionate about it, you and me and Christine and other people who follow this every day, uh, it's really hard to get the sense that this is not the direction which broader financial services are heading. And it's just impossible for these folks not to put these bets on, right? I think so too. Yeah, look, I mean, this may be the revenue generator for any bank in the next 10 years, right? I mean, not having it as part of your business is actually a greater risk than having it as part of your business. So, yeah. you know, you kind of like have to appropriately get in, you know, get in touch with it. And that's what they're doing. I think slowly but surely they're getting into the space. Once that regulatory clarity exists, they will all be there. Yeah, exactly right. Moritz, I love having you on the show so we can have exactly these kinds of conversations. But before we get too carried away with the optimism, I want to talk about our last story here. Uh, news headlines have obviously been full of stories of hacks lately, uh, and this space obviously has been quite on edge as a consequence. Yesterday, users reported a single blockchain address appeared to mint over $1 billion worth of Gala tokens, the native token of Gala games out of thin air. It sent crypto Twitter into a speculative frenzy. Uh, the conversation on Twitter was basically all over the place. Some users calling it a hack, other users calling it a rug pull. You know, whatever the language of your choosing here, the token plunged about 20% on the news. Moritz, I got to be honest with you. I wasn't familiar with Gala Games before this story broke, um, but it's easy to understand why this story caught crypto quitters' attention. A billion dollars is a lot of money. Moritz, what do you make of it? Yes, a billion dollars is a lot of money. And to be honest, I'm not familiar with Gala either. But the only thing I can tell you is, boy, I am so tired, like so fatigued. And so I just wanted to stop. Like, you know, it doesn't seem to stop. All these hacks, all these, you know, glitches. Um, I just wanted to stop. It just doesn't seem to go away. I find it really disturbing. And uh, boy, I just wanted to end. Yeah, boy, this really is like the yin and the yang, right? Like the glory and the tragedy of crypto all in like two stories back to back. That's right. Yeah. Well, Moritz, I could have a conversation with you for about three hours, but I really want to bring in our next guest, uh, Christine Kim, research analyst at Galaxy Digital to talk about ETH yields. Christine, how are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you, Ash? I'm doing great, Christine. It's always a pleasure to have you back. And I'm incredibly excited to have you have this conversation with Moritz to talk about ETH yield. Yes, it's a very timely topic, um, ETH yields. I think we're now 50 days past the merge. Um, and, and because of that upgrade, we've seen a lot of changes in Ethereum's uh, issuance and supply. So very, very timely topic. Yeah, really excited for this conversation. Moritz, I'll let you take it from here. I'll be back at the end of the conversation with my key takeaways. Hey, Christine, um, let's kick it off. It's really cool to have you on the show. And, you know, I must admit, 
I loved the podcast that you did with Tracy and Joe on Art Lance. And that was really like, I was listening to that while I was traveling and I thought, I definitely have to get Christine on the show to talk about e-fields and staking and validating and you know how this all works because you're deep into the weeds. But one thing, and that is where I'd like to start is, I, I listened to the to the podcast and you said, it was the plan all the time. Like, you know, since the beginning in 2015, they wanted to do proof of stake. That I found surprising. Like, I'm aware that they started discussing it like in 2017. It's kind of like, okay, that was the roadmap. We want to move from proof of work to proof of stake. But you were saying, no, no, no. That was kind of like, it was the plan from inception. And is that really, I mean, maybe maybe you can educate uh, uh, our, uh, you know, us on that. Why was that? I mean, why did they actually start with proof of work then? Why didn't they go immediately to proof of stake? It's a great question. And it's true that even before Ethereum launched, the plan and the roadmap and the intention was to transition Ethereum over to a proof of stake uh, consensus protocol. And the reason why they didn't do it immediately was because back then, say 2014, 2015, there was still a ton of research and development going into alternative consensus mechanisms to the one that Bitcoin had launched with, which is proof of work. And it was far more trusted at the time. The proof of work consensus mechanism was far more trusted, understood and known. Um, one of the, the concerns around proof of stake is that you need to create a lot of complex mechanisms in order to incentivize validators um, to secure the chain with money and assets that the chain itself is creating. Proof of work relies on an external resource, something like energy that already has a market for, many use cases for outside of crypto. Um, so I think one of the, the main reasons why Ethereum didn't launch with proof of stake at the beginning in 2015 was because there was still a ton of research and development that needed to go into how do we make a robust, secure proof of stake consensus protocol. And for the last, say seven years of of time uh, ethereum developers have been uh research the researching this topic and it was only recently in on september 15th of this year that developers felt ready um to to securely um and confidently migrate ethereum's proof of work protocol to to proof of stake and the task i think only just got harder and harder because Ethereum during those seven years grew exponentially. The number of applications, the number of users, the number of features and functionalities that the network started to grow with after it launched made the task of actually transitioning to proof of stake a lot harder than developers first expected when when they laid out that roadmap. Um, and I, I would highly recommend, you know, um, if you're interested a little bit more into this history, um, two different books. There's a book written by Laura Shin called The Cryptopians, I think. And then there's another one by uh, Cami Russo, Russo called Into the Ether that both talk about the early history of Ethereum. And the four, and there's there was four original um, phases of development for Ethereum, Serenity being the last one and the transition to proof of stake. So I think it, it's quite a feat that we're now in the final phase of Ethereum's original development roadmap, the Serenity phase. Um, but of course, there's still, there's just still so much to be done on Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, there's work ahead, like, you know, sharding. I mean, okay, we've just, you know, we've we've merged with the Beacon Chain, essentially. Um, Ethereum Proof of Work, by the way, is still out there. I think it trades at six bucks or something like that, I think the last time I looked, um, you know. 
Um, so what, in kind of like in which camp do you fall? Because this is, you know, it's it's been this debate, you know, you have proof of work, Bitcoin, for instance, you know, Ethereum used to be proof of work, but it's decentralized, it has massive hashing power, you know, you have less of these concerns that are now a part of the Ethereum world where you have concentration of stakers and validators that essentially have changed the nature of the blockchain and and its security feature if if you see what i mean i mean where do you think personally that what has happened is a positive would you have liked it to i mean it's you know, it's, it's done what what's done is done but are you a fan of proof of stake that's a good question am i a fan of proof of stake I think proof of stake has several merits, um, one of which is definitely the uh, energy efficiency of proof of stake. Mm -hmm. um, I think the narrative around um, using green technologies um, is, is a plus for Ethereum's narrative of trying to be a world computer. I think the jury is still out though on the functionality and the security of proof of stake blockchains over proof of work blockchains. I think the track record of what Bitcoin has shown and Bitcoin has proven time and time again is quite compelling to me. Um, but I also actually now that I'm saying this, I, I actually think that more so than, you know, is it proof of work or proof of stake, the biggest source of security that um, both of these consensus mechanisms are are trying to to encourage and trying to to veer towards actually its level of decentralization. So one of the the reasons why many Ethereum developers say that proof of stake is actually more secure than proof of work is because the number of validators is far larger than the number of professionalized miners. Um, that can exist on a proof of work consensus protocol. So because um, over time, the mining algorithm gets so specialized, it becomes so professionalized, people who are mining Bitcoin, it can no longer be at-home miners, it has to be these large public companies. Um, the good thing about proof of stake is that, well, you can have many at-home validators. You don't need a special machine, you can just do it from your, from your computer. But we're seeing the realities of that vision play out on Ethereum and we're seeing that actually the infrastructure for running large validators is hosted by companies like exchanges, like Coinbase, like Kraken. Um, so I think it, it's the problem of, I think, centralization still exists on both mechanisms. And, and I think regardless of either of those two mechanisms, the biggest thing that you're optimizing for is decentralization. You're trying to make sure that the infrastructure, the number of people that are providing security to your blockchain is is globally distributed. Um, so I know I skirted around the question of do I like proof of stake, but I think thinking about that question a little bit more now, I realize that whether it's proof of stake or proof of work, the biggest, most important aspect of a blockchain security is its decentralization. Um, and the jury is still out, um, I think, to see whether or not Ethereum becomes as decentralized as Bitcoin. Um, maybe it needs more time because Bitcoin's decentralization developed over time. Um, and hopefully proof of stake is not a consensus protocol and the, the, like the features of, of Ethereum's proof of stake protocol in particular, I hope that it um, 
I hope that it strengthens Ethereum's decentralization. Um, I think that, that you, that's you that. probably have the numbers. I mean, how centralized is Ethereum staking today? I know if I have, you know, 32 ETH, I can stake uh, and I can run a validator. I personally don't do that. Uh, I have somebody else do it for me. Like you've mentioned the exchange and Lido and like there's all sorts of providers. Um, but it seems to be, and essentially what I then get is a derivative, right? I get a staking derivative um, and, and they take a cut. But it, I, I have the feeling you have the numbers. It seems to be fairly concentrated in kind of like, you know, the hands of four or five major firms. Right. So the, the staking pools that operate those, like stake on behalf of other users, um, it's about 30% for Lido. 14% for Coinbase. Um, and then I can't remember what the last one, but I, I'm pretty sure that the, the third largest staking pool is Kraken. Um, I don't think it's quite an apples to apples to orange apples to apples comparison though, um, between, you know, the number of miners um, on Bitcoin, because there are also large, a handful of large mining pools that take the hash rate of miners and then um, aggregate it together uh, to produce a block. And so instead of aggregating hash rate on Ethereum, you've got people who have ETH and staking pools like Coinbase and Kraken and Lido that aggregate that stake and produce blocks. So I think there is a certain amount of centralization that exists in both systems, and there's quite a lot of development happening, even on the Bitcoin side, to make sure that Bitcoin stays censorship resistant, um, despite, you know, a concentration of mining hash rate to a, a few select mining pools. Um, a lot of work is going into that from Stratum V2 development. And I think on the Ethereum side, we're also trying to there's also a lot of development going into, okay, what are some of the uh, other research and development initiatives that we can take on to try and decentralize the role of staking pools? Um, because I, I, I agree with you that, you know, that's still extremely centralized to have, you know, a handful of, of staking pools managing stake on behalf of users. Um, but so, yeah. Sounds like, like, with the numbers you've just mentioned, like Lido and Coinbase and Kraken, sounds like, you know, you have more than 50, 60 percent. I mean, if you if you sum it all up, um, that is actually centralized. You've also mentioned that, you know, validators are chosen randomly. Um, is it really randomly or is there anything that, you know, Lido or Coinbase or any of these, you know, pools and operators could do uh, to increase the probability that they are the selected ones to build a block? So they have a greater probability of being able to be, to be selected to propose a block. So most validators will get a constant stream of rewards from attesting to blocks and attesting to transactions. Um, but the, the probability of you being selected to build a block as an independent validator just basically a node operator that runs a single validator is quite low because you're being chosen out of 400,000 active validators. Um, but say that as Lido, I control one third of those 400,000 validators, then that means that um, I will be 
chosen to select a, a block one third of the time. Um, and so that does increase your rewards as a validator node operator, but it doesn't, um, there's no there's no kind of gaming inherent to just having that um, much amount of stake. Um, and those rewards should be distributed back to the individual stakers. So the people that was, have pooled into their ETH, that, that those rewards should be distributed among those, um, those yeah. contributors to Lido. I was asking, and actually I wasn't planning on bringing up that question because it might be too detailed, but now I do. Um, and that is because I didn't understand it. Like I was speaking, a couple of weeks ago to um, an investment manager that's operating essentially an Ethereum yield product, right? And they were pitching to me that they would be getting higher yield than average market yields because they're more cleverly building or proposing blocks. Like there's something that they're doing different to just like a vanilla, I just run a validator. Let's just say on my laptop, I have 32 ETH. I run a validator. I do nothing. I just, I, I just participate. They were, they were telling me, and I didn't really understand it. We were running out of time that they do it in a clever way. And therefore they have a higher like yield. Does that sound uh, fair? Or is, is that, I mean, <laughs> have they be choking with me? Yeah, it's a good question. I think before the merge, so the, the way that validators would earn rewards was limited to issuance, issuance from the network. And there were several strategies to try and optimize so that your validator had 100% uptime. Basically, as an at-home validator, you can think of a time when my internet goes out for, you know, say a half hour. And during that half hour, I don't get the attestation rewards. But if I am giving my stake to a very extremely professional, um, you know, company that promises and guarantees 100% uptime to all of their nodes and all of their servers, you can see that there is like an incremental, say, increase in the amount of issuance that you get um, from operating that validator. And that was a strategy that certain staking companies had had really marketed. Um, but there is kind of a danger to over-optimizing your validator hardware because if you try and optimize for uptime and then you um, basically have, you know, a version of your validator that's running and when that validator goes offline, you can automatically spin up another version of that validator to make sure that your uptime is always 100%. You get this, you can fall into the trap of double signing and getting slashed as a validator because you have two instances of your validator running at the same time. Um, so there was quite a lot of conversation around um, that sort of optimization. But now that the merge has happened, there's actually two other sources of rewards that you can get as a validator. And one of them is maximal extractable value, MEV, and the other one is priority fees. Um, the way that you can maximize MEV is by connecting to a relay, um, which is an off-chain marketplace um, that connects you to a third-party builder. So instead of you looking at your local mempool and including your block with a bunch of transactions that have the highest priority fees, you can connect, you can basically receive a pre-built block from a builder that has received transaction bundles from searchers. They've reordered transactions in a more um, profitable way. And in that yeah. sense, you know, your rewards from that block are higher. So 
I think the digger, the deeper that you dig into this um, ETH yield, this ETH staking company, the more details you can get from how are they generating that additional revenue? Is it so, from optimizing your hardware? If it is, then I, I don't think like the adjustment is actually that high. Like even if you have 100% off time versus like 90% off time, I don't <laughs> think there's a huge difference. But if it is through certain private order flows, um, certain ways in which they're extracting MEV, connecting to different relays in a more strategic way, um, I think that might be a different way in which you can earn greater rewards. But um, you'd have to do a little bit more digging um, into asking how they're that, how they're that, that is exactly what we'll do on a separate show, Christine, mempool, relay, MEV. These are the things that, you know, we need to take a deeper dive on, but we'll probably keep that separate. Definitely like to invite you back to speak about these things. You've just mentioned slashing. So slashing is something that probably people have heard of and slashing is the risk, right? Slashing is if you are misbehaving, right? If you are um, not doing your job properly as a validator, then you get slashed. You have the numbers probably. To what extent has slashing taken place? I mean... Do you have like a percentage number on that? I mean, how frequently does that happen? Has it not happened yet? I mean, yeah, we've seen um, hundreds of validators get slashed on the beacon chain, um, but that is in comparison to say like four hundred thousand active validators that are being processed through um, the beacon chain every day. And there's two websites that I would like to highlight to listeners if you're interested in diving deeper into some of these slashing cases. Um, Beacon Chain um, with a period between CHA.IN <laughs> and then BeaconScan.com. Um, I don't know if you guys have show notes, but these are two blockchain explorers where you can take a look at all of the slashing events that have happened um, since the, the beginning of the blockchain. And just looking at one of those websites now, um, I can see that the most recent slashing event occurred basically three days ago. And then after that, the most recent slashing event happened 42 days ago. Um, so truly, slashing events are are pretty rare occurrences on the beacon chain, um, given you know the number of active validators that are constantly attesting and proposing blocks. And generally, these slashing events happen a lot at once. Um, so because the number of independent validators is not very high, you have occurrences where one validator node operator that's operating hundreds upon hundreds of validators, you know, a portion of their uh, infrastructure goes down. And when that happens, it impacts, say, like dozens of validators. Um, so I think one of the the interesting things about the way that you look at slashing events happening on chain is that they often happen um, in a correlated fashion. There's like a, a spike in, say, like dozens of validators getting slashed all in one day um, and then no slashing events for several weeks. Um, and then, you know, so it sounds like cycle. it's it's more like a hardware problem, like, you know, validators going down and that results in a slash in a slashing event rather than, you know, somebody doing something that is, you know, against against the protocol, so to say. I mean, is, is that fair to say? I mean, by the way, I'm, I think it's kind of nice to to hear that it's actually a rare occurrence, like, you know, three days ago, 40 day, 42 days yeah. ago. So it's kind of like it's not like a daily thing, which which I think is a positive. Yeah, I don't think that um, 
I don't, I think most of these are unintentional slashing events, as in, as I was mentioning about the double signing instance where you tried to optimize, over-optimize your hardware, and then you accidentally had two instances of your validator running at the same time. So I think there was a lot of like accidental slashing events that have happened. Um, but also I think when you see an individual validator get slashed, um, who knows, maybe it was someone trying to game the system, trying to uncover a loophole in the consensus protocol of the beacon chain. Um, but the beacon chain, unlike, you know, the merge, which happened just, you know, a couple 50 days ago, the beacon chain has been live up and running since December 2020. Um, so I think over time, the, um, the resilience of the protocol itself, the fact that people have had, had years to try and game the system, to try and steal funds, to try and um, create um, kind of network disruptions and network failures. Um, it's really encouraging to see that uh, despite these slashing events and probably the number of attempts that have been made to try and break the system, um, Ethereum continues to, to operate um, extremely efficiently and smoothly um, post-merge and even before the merge as well. Right, right. Final question, Christine. I mean, this is really fascinating, um, but yields. I mean, where are yields today? Why I, I know they're not ten percent, but like you know, before the merge, a lot of people they were on on the show, and I was like, look, probably Ethereum yields are going to be between eight and twelve percent, you know, and um, maybe that was a good forecast. But I have a feeling they're more like between four and five, uh, relatively stably. So, um, tell us the latest. Give us the scoop. Where where are the yields, and why are they not ten? Yeah, why are they not ten? It's a great question. I think the main reason is because. Um, you know, user activity on chain is still pretty low um, because of the bear market and the broader like macro conditions that we're in right now. We're not seeing a ton of users interact with DeFi applications. Uh, we're seeing a lot of trade volume for NFTs, um, extremely low. And that is, of course, impacting validator rewards. The last I checked, um, validator rewards for issuance from the network is at 4.68% APY. Um, but if you also include the amount of of rewards that a validator can earn from priority tips, which is basically optional transaction fees that users attach to their um, to prioritize their transactions in a block, um, as well as the earnings that you can receive from MEV as a validator, that APY actually jumps up to around 8%. Um, so the numbers of 8 to 12% weren't entirely off, but it is on the lower end of that estimation of 8% is what we're seeing. Um, and I will also caveat that when you include priority fees and MEV to the validator reward issuance, it becomes extremely variable depending on the validator that you're looking at. So that 8.1% is an average. Um, issuance, issu your reward from issuance is fairly stable. You can think about it almost like, you know, the steady amount of rewards that you could have earned as a miner um, from the block issuance. It doesn't, it's very, it, if it changes, it changes extremely um, in, a, in an extremely small increment. So like- And, and that's about, the 4.6%, sorry yeah. to interrupt, right? That is the stable part. That's 4.6, you're kind of like, guaranteed. that is what you get. Now, if yeah. you're clever about things, the way you run your business, you can get eight or nine. If you or, run- Or even more, right? I mean, you were, I think you were suggesting that yeah. it's actually quite variable. 
it, it is extremely variable. And, and I think we've seen the difference in rewards that you can get by connecting to, um, say, the Flashbots MEV relay versus other relays. And again, these relays are like off-chain marketplaces to earn MEV. Um, and one of the estimations that I saw um, actually on a transparency dashboard um, created by Flashbots that if you, that blocks generated from the Flashbots relay are double, if not triple, more valuable than blocks produced locally or blocks produced from other relays. Um, so that kind of discrepancy, I think, in terms of earnings, depending on which relay you're getting your block from, um, is is pretty shocking to see, but um, just stretches, stresses again the importance of decentralizing infrastructure on Ethereum for validators and making sure that validator infrastructure on Ethereum is continuing to, to get more competitive um, across like many different participants rather than centralized to a single participant. Okay. Fantastic, Christine. I think it's time for me to bring back in Ash, um, but promise me to get back on the show with us. I'd really like to have um, like just an, an episode technically focused on ETH staking and like all the details about it. We'll probably need an hour for this or more. Um, but Ash, hey, come back in. Wow, that was absolutely fantastic, guys. Just a totally spectacular conversation. I'm sure our audience learned a ton. Let me just give you some of my key takeaways here. First, the plan was always to migrate ETH from proof of work to proof of stake, but there was still significant research and development that needed to be done to make proof of stake a robust and secure protocol, that project became more challenging as ETH scaled and grew exponentially. Second, Christine is a fan of some of the core functionality of proof of stake, uh, particularly environmental friendliness, for example, but the jury is still out on the security and decentralization. Bitcoin has been the gold standard of security and decentralization for some time now. Uh, and as large corporate staking pools spin up, decentralization in Ethereum is still very much a challenge. So the jury is still out on whether ETH can become as decentralized as Bitcoin. Finally, third, block validation is based on the random selection of validators, but the stochastic nature is still bounded by the distribution of control of those validators. For example, if a given pool controls one third of the validators, they will on average get selected one third of the time. Christine, those were my key takeaways. Did I get that mostly right? Yeah, that was perfect. I, I was nodding my head um, the whole way through. I think those are great takeaways. Well, this was absolutely fantastic, Christine. I know you're working uh, on a new report about Ethereum right now. Eager to have you back on to get to switch chairs with Moritz uh, and have that conversation with you when that report comes out. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I would just like to say thank you for guys for having me again. And these conversations around ETH yields and ETH staking is something that I think will continue to be of importance, especially the higher the number of people, um, the greater the percentage of, of total amount of ETH supply staked becomes. Because right now we're only at around 12% of total ETH supply staked, but I can see that number, you know, doubling over the over the coming years. So the the larger the supply gets staked, um, the more this conversation gets gets important, uh, more important to have in the future. Moritz, great conversation. Any final thoughts or key takeaways from you? No, I think my video is frozen. I hope you can still hear me. Uh, all I have to say is thank you, Christine. I thought it was really interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, having you back on the show. Um, thanks for all the information you provided today and thanks for a good show.
Moritz, Christine, absolutely spectacular conversation today. That's it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe. Real Vision Crypto is free. For those of you watching on YouTube, smash everything, the like button, the bell, and subscribe. We have a great lineup next week. You won't want to miss it. See you Monday live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great weekend, everybody.